Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Conversations on Inares. I'm Dr. Joseph Orozco. I'm a professor of philosophy at Oregon State University and the co-director of the Inares Project for Alternative Futures. The Inares Project is a forum for conversations, projects, and initiatives that imagine a future free of domination, exploitation, war, and empire. Here on Conversations on Inares, we talk with scholars, activists, and artists about the possibilities of radical social transformation today. Today, we're going to examine a hysteria that's currently sweeping the United States. Over the past few months, about a dozen states with Republican-majority legislatures have passed laws banning the teaching of critical race theory in public schools. So we talked with Dr. Mark Nason to help us unpack what is going on with some of these bans. Mark Nason is a professor of history and African-American studies at Fordham University in New York City. His many books and articles cover African-American politics, labor history, popular culture, and educational policy. He's also the founder of the Bronx African-American History Project, and he's a frequent commentator on CNN, Fox News, The O'Reilly Factor, and most notably, I think uh, many people may know him uh, for his appearance on The Chappelle Show in the early 2000s. And he's been a frequent collaborator with the NRA's project on our blog for many years. Dr. Nyson says that people are confusing three things uh, with this, uh, these new bans that are taking place. Critical race theory, for one, which is a complex theoretical framework used in law schools and in academia. Then there's also culturally responsive pedagogy, which is about developing curriculum in K through 12 public schools to respond to the needs of multiracial and multi-ethnic school populations. And then there's also anti-racist sensitivity trainings, which are programs that are developed mainly for corporate HR and government institutions. Mark has written a statement decrying these bans on critical race theory. And he talks in uh, our discussion today about how we should approach the teaching of race in the United States. And he advises us that we should focus both on the horrors of white supremacy but also on the bravery and joys of communities of color resisting and struggling for human dignity. So why don't we go ahead now and turn to our discussion on the bans on critical race theory with Dr. Mark Nason. All right, so we're here with uh, Dr. Uh, Mark Nason from Fordham University. Mark, it's a, a, a deep uh, honor of mine to have you on uh, the program. Um, you know, we've been collaborating for many years through yeah. the Lari's Project blog. You've been one of our consistent uh, voices that we that we amplify on there, but we've never had a chance actually to speak. So uh, it's it's an honor for me to uh, speak with you. I, I think I first became aware of you as a, a young person because of your appearance, of course, on the Chappelle Show. Oh, as the uh, sort of uh, the anonymous African-American studies professor. So, but I've come to really gain great respect for your work uh, in uh, history and African-American studies at Fordham. So uh, I just want to express to you my gratitude for being able to come on and, and speak with me a little bit. Well, well, thank you. I mean, uh, the Anna Rays Project has been a place where a lot of my writings have been circulated. It's something I really appreciate. Uh, and so finally meeting you in person, uh, even through Zoom, is, uh, is very exciting. No, and thank course, you. Thank uh, you. This particular subject is, uh, you know, to put it mildly, timely. 
Yeah, no, right. And, and, and the other thing, you know, we are discussing today on, uh, uh, on Juneteenth. Right. Uh, uh, so uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. But yeah, I, I wanted to speak with you a little bit about this hysteria that's uh, been created in the past few months uh, because of critical race theory. And so, you know, as, as you know, over the past few months, about a dozen of states, most of them with Republican majority legislatures, have passed laws and there have been various state school boards that have banned the teaching of, quote, what they call, quote, critical race theory in public schools. So as a professor of African-American history and studies, you, you've issued a short statement that you hope will be used by people to be read at school board meetings and other places where mm -hmm. educational policy is being discussed. And so I just wanted to read the statement for folks so that they can have it and then talk a little bit about with, uh, with you about okay. it. So the, the statement that you, that you wrote, that you, you sent for people that um, you know, folks essentially asked you to write for them, teachers around the country, um, state something like this. So, quote, critical race theory is a framework for viewing U.S. legal history that is widely discussed in law school classes and has occasionally been used as a guide to anti-racism training in universities, businesses, and government agencies but it has never been used anywhere in the country to shape the development of curriculum in K through 12 schools. Treating it as a threat to public education is not only disingenuous, it is creating an atmosphere of panic that will discourage instruction in black history, indigenous history, and the history of race and immigration in the United States. Culturally responsive pedagogy is not critical race theory. Treating it as such will have profoundly destructive consequences do not give in to the hysteria, close quote. So uh, some questions I wanna ask you about this. In your understanding, what exactly is critical race theory? How should we understand this idea, this concept? Um, I may be the wrong person to ask because I've never studied it. It has never been part of my professional training. It has never, as you know, as someone whose uh, doctoral work was in American history and whose research has been in African-American uh, history, labor history, in the history of popular culture. Never have I discussed this with other historians. Never has it been discussed in the Department of African and African-American Studies at Fordham. Mm. Um, Insofar as I understand it, it, it's a framework for understanding the ways in which uh, white supremacy and racism have shaped all institutions in American society. Um, and it also has a component uh, which encourages people to interrogate their own positionality within those structures. Um, and that is, both of those are controversial in different ways. Now, first of all, as a historian, I never try to present overarching theories to explain the subjects I study. I'm influenced by those theoretical frameworks, but for me, my historical research complicates 
as well as affirms any theoretical framework I am, you know, presented with. So as a historian, I'm very skeptical of somebody presenting me with a theoretical framework to teach. So yes, obviously I study white supremacy and racism in US history, but I also study resistance to those. I study, you know, phenomena which complicate that portrait. Um, and I'm always open to voices which have never been heard before, which may make any theoretical framework, you know, uh, have to be reevaluated. So that's one thing. You know, as a historian, I am not a social theorist, mm -hmm. which may, is maybe a difference between me and a sociologist or a uh, political scientist. Right. Um, you know, I'm in love with new information that complicates everybody's theories. So what does it mean to say then that, um, you know, people have been, uh, from what I've seen from a lot of the discussion about this, is that people are saying that there's this theoretical framework that's somehow being used to influence teacher training and the development of curriculum around the country. And you say it, that this is simply there's not There's no true. evidence of that. What it has influenced is anti-racism training which has proliferated following the murder of George Floyd. And in fact, the person who is most responsible for spreading the, this sort of you know, manufactured panic over critical race theory was initially responding to anti-racism training in government agencies, both in the state of Washington where he was living and in government agencies in the federal government. None of, you know, if, if you read everything that this guy, Chris Rufo, wrote, 98% of it is response to anti-racism training that is going on uh, in businesses, in government agencies. But the, uh, what, what is the panic is about it being taught in public schools, and that is totally cynical and manufactured. So a lot of this seems to be following, uh, a lot of this is sort of like the after effects of the Trump administration, because of course he did issue that executive order that banned the use of uh, diversity trainings and sensitivity trainings uh, in uh, government institutions. So this seems to be sort of uh, a little bit of after effects of the Trump administration. Yeah, People are picking also, up that agenda. Yes, absolutely. It's also a response to the Black Lives Matter movement and the proliferation of anti-racism training in places like police departments and the military. Mm. You know, there were a lot of people pissed off by being made to go to anti-racism training. Right. And you take the anger of those people and, the, the, uh, and then the anger of people uh, at the Black Lives Matter movement and you focus it on public school instruction mm -hmm where this has no applicability. It's a manufactured crisis. It's, it's mass hysteria. Well, so let me ask this question then too, because we're, you know, we're well, talking but about- it has uh, become this before in history around rape. You know, 
you know, black men being seen, every black man being seen as a potential rapist. That was part of what drove lynching and, you know, the creation of Jim Crow. It's the cynical use of, you know, of, of misinformation to achieve a goal of reinforcing, you know, a sanitized version of American history in schools. Well, this is the one thing I wanted to, that I was asking about. So, you know, on the one hand, we have uh, CRT, which seems to be, you know, based on your uh, assessment, a kind of a, uh, a small, uh, not necessarily small, but a, a component of, ed of education in law schools and in higher education, yes. but not something that's been a trend that's uh, in educational policy or in curriculum development. But you, ha you, you have that on the one hand, and then you have the proliferation of diversity trainings and seminars in, in business and in the military. Uh, but then you also distinguish in your statement culturally responsive pedagogy. And I was wondering if you could explain what you mean by that. What's culturally yeah. sensitive pedagogy? Well, I, I think that culturally responsive pedagogy uh, was something that really began to emerge in the 80s and 90s as a way to improve levels of achievement of, among people from marginalized groups whose history was left out of textbooks and courses. Mm. So the idea was to uh, expand and modify curriculum so that the cultures uh, and, and traditions and history and voices of marginalized groups are within what is taught in, in, in our public schools. Mm. And that was also controversial when it first started. Uh, but over the last 20 years, you know, it's become, you know, more prevalent, especially as a Sparta student achievement. And um, it's been used, especially by people, by progressive educators, to say that if you want to improve achievement, create curriculum that gives you know, the most marginalized students something to get excited and connect to rather than, you know, bombard them with test prep. Right. So a lot of the, the, the people I know in education, principals, teachers who are protesting against common core and, you know, uh, digested test-driven pedagogy you said what we need is instead of test prep is culturally responsive pedagogy. Give right. students material that allow that that increases their engagement with what they're learning. And a lot of that ends up being, you know, African American, Latinx, you know, history, literature, music, art, um, and and the like. Um, now what it doesn't do is force all students to interrogate their identities. In other words, you present student, students with material that may make them more comfortable in some cases, and in other cases may make them a little, mm. little uncomfortable, but you leave it to them to, to, to work that through. Yeah, a lot of these bands actually that I've noticed in reading them 
prohibit the teaching of any kind of material that they say would somehow emotionally harm or make people feel bad about themselves or the ethnic identity that they identify with. And so part of this worry is that, that something's being taught in K through 12 schools that's inflicting emotional damage on children. Well, so well, you, is you, that you, a response to culturally responsive pedagogy? It, it's, see, it's a, it's a sneak attack mm. uh, on culturally responsive pedagogy and all the research being done on African-American, indigenous, Latinx history that is inevitably going to change some of the ways we view the history of the country. Mm. And you call it critical race theory and ban it. In other words, the label allows you to ban, you know, expanding the historical uh, narrative. Not, see, what, what they're saying is you're ma- is in critical race theory, everybody has to interrogate their own identities. Right, right. Now that's what may happen in a training pr- program in a corporation or government agency. Everybody has to talk about, how does this make you feel? Right. But that's not what schools do, to my knowledge, nor should it be what they do. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this because you've come out and stated that even in your own teaching, when you teach the histories of immigration and of race in the United States, you don't necessarily seek to have students do that kind of interrogation of self, or you don't try to get them to have a kind of a reaction. Uh If they do it, fine. I don't require it. I don't require every, you know, Irish, Italian, Jewish, Arab student um, to say, when you're learning about the uh, the Tulsa race massacre, how does it change how you think about yourself? Mm -hmm. I never do that. I present the material and then give students time and space to interpret it, but not in relation to their personal identity. That to me is an invasion of privacy in the classroom. To I don't ask. want to go there. Now, maybe I know there are some people at some universities which require people to take courses where they interrogate their own identities. You will never catch me teaching that course. But do you, in your experience, do you find that your students tend to do that anyway on their own? In uh, some do and some don't. But what I have see what I've had conservative students come in and being really pissed out about racial sensitivity training mm-hmm. and come in and say, Dr. Nason, I love your classes because you present a lot of different voices, a lot of different perspectives, and allow us to make up our own minds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I am, I have a lot of those conservative students who have stayed in touch with me over the years, some of whom have changed enormously. Right. But in some cases, over four years, five years, six years. Yeah. yeah. Not in two days. So you you wouldn't say that your your teaching then is you would uh, uh, characterize your work as uh, anti-racist then? Um, I think 
it is, but I I wouldn't characterize it as that. Right. Good. good. I I do research that uncovers extremely uncomfortable information uh-huh. about what you know marginalized people have experienced. It is I see my job as having those is magnifying those voices. That's what my big research project, the Bronx African-American History Project, we've completely revised the dominant narrative of Bronx history. But it's taken 20 years. Yeah. It it didn't happen in a two-day seminar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, So I think people on the... You risk enforcing people to go to a certain place in a short amount of time, turning them off, which is what I think the a lot of these racial sensitivity and anti-bias trainings have done. So part of one of the things I, I was reading yesterday, the the legislation that was passed by the um, Florida School Board, most recently banning uh, the teaching of critical race theory. And they they have a list of a variety of different things that they don't want in their uh, schools anymore. And and they they put it under the banner of efficient and faithful teaching. And one of the things that they say that does not count as uh, efficient and faithful teaching is the view that uh, racism, so this this would not be allowed in Florida schools, the idea that racism is, quote, embedded in American society and its legal systems in order to uphold the supremacy of white persons, close quote. Instead, what they consider to be efficient and faithful teaching is emphasizing that racism is what they say, quote, merely a product of prejudice. And so this seems to kind of go on this distinction of between institutional and personal racism. Yeah, well, so, to me, that is something to be sabotaged. Yeah, I was wondering, what do you think I, about I this mean, distinction? I don't, you know, race, you know, you examine objectively how racism has shaped political, economic, social, cultural behavior. And... Um, also look at anti, you know, forces which are contradictory to that and let the chips fall where they may. But you, you know, if you're in Florida, you have to look at the state's history of segregation. You mm-hmm. have to look at its history of lynching. You have to look at its history of displacement and murder of indigenous people. Are those the only things that have gone on in Florida? No. But they're part of it. You have to come to terms with. So, would you say, uh, you know, we were talking before about theory and uh, sort of imposing sort of certain kinds of frameworks? I think that part of my reading of what was going on in this Florida uh, uh, amendment was that uh, the school board was concerned that a certain kind of framework was being imposed on teaching that was about the definition of racism. So that they were uh, they were concerned that a certain idea of institutional racism is being upheld in the curriculum, and they wanted to reduce that to just simply saying that right racism is just the feelings of racial animus that some people have in their hearts, but it's not a description of 
how society works in an well, way. you know, race. You know what I would say in response is racism is also about power. It's right. about certain groups trying to monopolize for themselves access to power, prestige, wealth, employment, um, and um, that's what's happened through much of American history. At, but there's we're also forces fighting against that, right? And you know, so the tension between the inst, you know institutionalized racism and uh, you know various forces which seek to fairly utilize the talents of everyone—that's a continuous tension in U.S. history. So let's explore the tension between institutional racism and more democratic forces, which have been there. Sometimes those democratic forces are even driven by capitalism in order to have a fairer access to the labor force. Sometimes right. it's driven by national interests, like in World War II, where you need to, to, to win a war, use the talents of the entire population. And you end up challenging existing prejudices and, and challenging structures of racial exclusion because they, they stand in the way of that goal. Right, right. Um, you know, what I think is you have, you know, the Florida school board is the enemy of historical complexity. And so are some critical race theorists. And my job is to mess with both of them. Gotcha. But never let anybody stop the continuous research we're doing to uncover the tragic, you know, violence and uh, uh, denial of access to wealth and resources directed at marginalized people, African-Americans, indigenous people. We have, and, and, not, and if they're not gonna not let us do it in the schools, then we create museums. We, you know, we create monuments. There should be a Florida lynching museum. If you can't teach in the schools, let's go and talk about that history or the history of, you know, of massacres of indigenous people. You know, this is a time for us to expand our reach with the information that we're getting about, you know, uh, what has really happened to Black, uh, Latinx, Indigenous, and other, you know, marginalized peoples in U.S. history. Well, Mark, I want to say uh, this has been uh, enlightening. Thank you for the, the work that you do. Thank you for helping us to understand a little bit about what these bands are. And um, it's uh, exciting to see your work in support of public school teachers. Uh, and uh, I know that many, uh, many teachers in the, in the classrooms look up to you as someone who can give them uh, understanding of all of these issues. And so appreciate your work uh, with those teachers everywhere. And so I uh, want to say thank you for coming uh, 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 to speak with us a little bit. Uh, and I hope that we can uh, continue discussing and perhaps have you back for discussion oh, no. more about some of your this work. This was great. I mean, I thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. I know that, I, you know, I'm not going to please a lot of people on the left with what I say, but uh, maybe I will. Maybe oh. it doesn't matter. Maybe it doesn't matter. 
Yeah, uh, no, I, I well, I, I, a great opportunity to talk honestly about history yeah. and, and its complexities without uh, mitigating the horrors that have been inflicted on marginalized people, but also their ability to resist, fight back, make their voices heard, because that's part of what this is a reaction against. Right. And also just to what I know about your work is, especially in the way that you present uh, popular culture is in uh, the joy of struggle and the joy of fighting and resisting through music, through song, through uh, various forms of art. So uh, uh, as you were talking about, just sort of like the the enormous kinds of ways of expression of thinking about freedom, uh, liberty, but also, you know, horror and pain. Right. It's sort of like what Cornel West talks about with the blues, right? The blues as a, as a, a beautiful reaction to horrible life circumstances. Yeah. And that seems to be something that you really always... But it's not just the blues. It's also, like Robin Kelly says, it's insisting on your right to be to joy. Yeah. yeah. The right to joy. It's not just the blues. Sometimes right. joy is the best way it's striking out against your, you know, your oppressors. Right. Being happy uh, when someone wants to bring you down. Right. Very good. Well, thank you, Mark. I really appreciate uh, your time with us. And, you know, viewers and listeners, thank you for your time with us. If you have any questions or comments, go ahead and leave us some comments down below uh, or contact us. We are available as the Inari's Project on all of the socials. Uh, We look forward to hearing your reactions and your thoughts about this new critical race theory hysteria in the country. Leave us some comments. Thanks once again, Mark, and hope to see you soon. Okay, cool.